and welcome to the third episode of My Writing Sucks, where I read my horrible writing to make you feel better about yours. And last we left Cree, she was, like, vaguely in trouble with her father for speaking out at a delegate meeting for no express reason, and her little sister just puked on the front of, like, a pseudo-prince, but there aren't really princes in this world because the boundaries of the countries are totally unintelligible and not... Not much has happened yet. You haven't missed much if you're just joining into this party now. But without further ado, let's keep moving and hope something happens soon. Chapter 3 My father dragged me to his chambers by my sleeve. Once behind closed doors, he sat on his grand canopy bed, rubbing his temples, agitation in his eyes. His hair, like Tudor Bremley's, also had a couple gray streaks amongst the sea of blonde, most likely thanks to me. The stress of an entire civilization to run was nothing. Handling his teenage daughter seemed to be another story. Orchid, 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 he said over and over again. Decided, I decided against correcting him. He spoke with subdued anger, as if trying to be reverent. Your mother named you after a lovely flower, hoping in turn you would turn out to be a beautiful, graceful, and responsible princess, he paused. Obviously you have not. I was deeply offended by this. Hey, I can be a proper princess, if I want to. If you want to. That's just it. You don't want to. You ditch your lessons, ride that demon horse, speak out of turn, and laugh at improper times. You aren't the princess the provinces expects you to be. Now your sisters are another matter. They understand what it means to be a royal and all that it entails. People look up to you as beautiful moon orchid, the second eldest princess. Instead, you go by Cree. He said the name with a certain disgusted tone. My mother knew nothing of being a royal, much less a queen. He had crossed a line with that. Why did people love her so much then? I challenged. You dare question me? I forged onward. She cared for their well-being and tried to improve the conditions of where they lived. She visited every province for the simple reason of wanting to get to know her people. She was brave and noble and loved. Everything you hope to be but never will be. Ooh! Roasted, get it. Excuse me, young lady? Yeah, I said it. The people hate you. You tax them so you can get money for yourself. What was it you said the other day? Adding a, a lawn bowling course? Seriously? You should listen to Delegate Lay. She has a point. Okay. I can totally see increased character, her just needing to speak out and kind of not having a filter. But what I really don't like that 14-year-old me did here is that I'm giving Cree the completely obvious moral high ground, and just, she's kind of this perfect character who sees the wrong of the greedy king. It's just very moralistic and black and white and straight up boring. I want some complexity. I want some nitty gritty moral issues and not just this basic fairy tale logic. The king sat on his bed in silence and looked around the large and ornately decorated room. Gotta say, I do like how she calls him the king and not dad. He stood up suddenly and said through a smirk, I have a solution, Miss Orchid. Your days of backtalk and disrespect are over. He pointed his finger right at my face. I could have just said he pointed, because what else would he point with? You will be sent to St. Agnes's Etiquette Academy for Royal Girls until you learn your lesson, or lessons. 
St. Agnes's? I spoke in a whisper, shocked. He spat out, yes, you imbecile. It is the finest finishing school in all of the Valley Province. You will learn everything there is to be a princess. The posture, the talk, the etiquette. And Miss Agnes will be informed that you will not be able to leave until you are completely cured of this rebellion inside you. Tears burned in my eyes. No, you can't send me there. I, I'll be better. I'll, I'll try. And he turned and said sharply, You have two days. Then off to the academy. He made his dismissed hand sign. I sulked out of his chamber to find Margareta waiting outside. She twirled her honey-blonde hair within her claw-like nails, a devilish grin on her face. The resemblance to an evil version of Little Rose was almost uncanny. Goodbye, Orchid, she eyed, she eyed me deviously. I resisted every urge I had to say something sassy. Instead, I bit my tongue for once as horrible images flooded my mind. Wait, why would she bite her tongue? She's already kind of hit rock bottom with punishments, so... She can say whatever the heck she wants, no reason to bite her tongue anymore. I pictured myself stuck in a classroom learning stupid manners and then spending the rest of a perfect afternoon trapped up in a dorm. I was not going to be forced to bear that torture. There was only one option left. I think what kills me with that line is saying there's only one option left implies that the reader knows all of the other possible options that she could take, but they don't. It's just inferred that the reader can read her mind and knows exactly what she's thinking, which you don't at this point. I dashed down into the kitchens to see Mrs. Shelton and Miss Hendricks still cleaning up after dinner. They both turned around and looked concerned at my appearance, as I was normally up in my room at this time of night. My eyes burned with tears, yet I gripped my teeth and held them back. My father was not going to win this. I was not defeated. Hey, Cree, what is it? Miss Hendricks asked. I sat down on the stool by the stove and placed my face in my hands. The king wants to send me away to an etiquette school. I shoved my face further into my palms, hoping to disappear. Ah, Miss Shelton guessed. St. Agnes's. Best in the provinces. Of course, by the look on your face, I can tell it might not be your cup of tea. I shook my head slowly. What should I do? I mean, it's not like he's going to change his mind at this point. He said I only had two days and then I was off. Okay, I'm confused here. She just said there was only one option left and now she's asking what she's got to do. Did she mean her only option was to go visit Miss Shelton and Miss Hendricks? Because, sure, but saying that before sounded way more dramatic. The kitchen was silent for a moment, except for the slow drip of water coming from the water basin. Out of nowhere, Miss Hendricks exclaimed, I have an idea. It's kind of outlandish. Could get Miss Shelton and I sacked, but it would get you out of the academy. I looked over at her, confused. What? You could run away, she said bluntly as she continued to wipe off the dishes. Miss Shelton smiled. Evelyn, you are a genius. An evil one, but a genius. I sat silently thinking about the drastic option. But where would I live? How would I get food? How would I sneak out? How? Miss Hendricks stopped me. Gee, girl, calm down. We can plan it out now. Miss Shelton piped in. I know someone in Redbark that can make it so someone never existed. <laughs> Miss Shelton, were you a double agent or something? Are you a crime boss? How do you know this? I want to know it. I feel like there's a backstory there. Moving on. Even me? Everyone in the provinces knows my name. It might be a challenge, but he can do it. Who is he? I want to know. We spent the next hour and a half talking and deliberating over my escape. Soon enough, the plan was finalized, set to go down tomorrow night. One thing weighed on my mind, though. Won't people recognize me still? Miss Shelton smiled slyly. I've got that covered. What do you mean? I asked uncertainly. Just come by after dinner tomorrow. She pushed me toward the door, and before I could say another word, she exclaimed, Go, Cree, go! 
So I do feel the need to note, I have read through Creative Canopy a few times since I wrote it back in 2013 or whatever, and I left a fair amount of notes and sticky notes um, with various comments, and there is one on this page that says, change entire escape plan in a, a sad face with a little a little tongue sticking out like it's gross. So I think even 14-year-old me recognized the um, complete and utter lack of any substance whatsoever to this plan, so props to her for at least recognizing that in editing. I woke up the next morning with butterflies in my stomach. My hands were shaking as I got dressed, not because I was nervous, but because this was my last morning in the castle. After grabbing an apple from the kitchen for breakfast, I ambled through the halls and out to see Steve. I walked up behind him and he jumped about five feet. Feet again, okay, that's the last time I'll comment on the US measurements, but it just bothers me for no reason. Oh, uh, a high Cree, he said nervously. What's with you? Oh. Nothing. He pulled his shirt sleeve over his wrist with shaking hands, but not before I noticed something odd. There, on his wrist, was the tattoo of a small flame. Okay, how have you never noticed that before? You sword fight together. He probably wasn't wearing a long sleeve shirt the entire time, and his shirt sleeve would fall anyway. Unless he just got the tattoo, she would have noticed that at some point. Or she's incredibly oblivious, which honestly I would believe at this point. That's a cool tattoo, Steve. What's it mean? He tensed. Nothing important, just a past mistake. I feel the need to explain. This is my really crappy way of trying to foreshadow this bigger conflict that I had coming that never panned out, so remember the little blue tattoo. Or did I even say it was blue? I think it was supposed to be blue. Remember the little flame tattoo. It sort of, kind of vaguely comes back later, and that's what I was trying to foreshadow. We were silent for a moment. The cool morning breeze blew through the field, swaying the grass gently. Steve finally spoke. Well, I think it's about time I teach you my special move. An old swordmaster taught it to me. When it's performed correctly, you paralyze your opponent. Just hit the right spots. He jabbed two spots on my upper and lower arm and it went limp. What? <laughs> Ow! That's not how pressure points work. <laughs> and you have disarmed your opponent, literally, he chuckled to himself. Once the feeling returned to my arm, he showed me different spots to paralyze one arm, both arms, one leg, both legs, and finally the entire body. Oh my gosh, this is painful. So I guess I was trying to mix like acupuncture and sword fighting and like magic-ish into this weird paralysis sword fighting technique. Honestly, I don't know why you just wouldn't stab someone through the middle if you can get close enough to like poke them in the right spots. Do you have to say like boop <laughs> when you like hit their arm like boop 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 <laughs> It's not funny, but it is. It's just so ridiculous. This is what I mean like why did I include sword fighting if this is what I was going to do? More than that, why did I include this ridiculously stupid pressure point logic instead of just having some kind of magic sword and if you hit them with it they'll be paralyzed. Honestly I would have accepted magic more quickly than this ill thought out pressure point reason. Moving on. First make a hard jab to the sternum then the stomach area and then the thigh. See then I get more specific and I ruin it. I'd rather not know the details. I anyway. And bam a paralyzed opponent. Don't worry I won't demonstrate this time. <laughs> Uh, thanks. I'm not sure I wanted to be immobile for the rest. The horn signaled the knights to fall in for the afternoon briefing. 
how convenient is this horn? It just cuts them off right in the middle of like the most important part of all of their lessons. This stupid horn. And why are they just like randomly going in at these times in the day when Kree and him happen to be hanging out? Oh, that's so irritating for such a small unimportant reason. Steve bowed jokingly and turned to leave. I stopped him and said with a heavy heart, Steve, today was our last lesson. I think someone found out about this. Who? I can make them- Make them what, Steve? Are you gonna murder them? Are you just gonna poke them until they're paralyzed? <laughs> what? Steve, I'll miss you. I hugged him tightly and he smiled. Well, Miss Cree, I, I hope I've taught you something useful. Don't worry, you did. See you sometime, he said as he ran toward the gates. As he jogged, I caught another glance of the tattoo. Wait, how? Was he running, like, with his arms sticking out behind him and his sleeve, like, awkwardly rolled up? <laughs> How'd she get another glance at that? If he's, especially if he's running away from her. Underneath it, there were three black lines. I shook it off and focused on the task at hand. What kills me is that tattoo doesn't come back until way toward the end of the novel. There was no reason to foreshadow it here. Especially so quickly and haphazardly. I walked over to the stables, my sword still in my hands. I dashed through the stalls, heading straight to Echo. He whinnied at my sight, and I stroked him quickly, then turned to grab my stable bag. I left my sword in its place, buried under a fresh mound of hay. See you soon, Echo, I said as I left the stables. I gotta say, at this point in the chapter, I'm liking how things are actually happening. We're getting toward the escape, we're saying an emotional goodbye. My bar is incredibly low if I'm just hoping for things to happen in a story. Once I had finished up some final preparations, I went down to the kitchen. As I entered, a horrible tar-like smell overwhelmed me. I pinched my nose together. Oh, what is that? Tar? Miss Shelton stirred the mixture gingerly and said, No, furniture stain. Oh, no, you are not putting that on my hair, are you? Sorry, girly. This is the price you pay. Miss Hendricks had me sit on a stool. Get ready. She snipped off a large lock, leaving the front in a jagged shoulder-length cut. I winced. My hair was my favorite thing about my appearance. I loved how it was the perfect length to just stick in a braid or just leave down. The gold blonde matched my mom's hue exactly. I suppose that fact made me feel a bit closer to her. Okay, small rant here. First, I would have liked to see Cree focus on her hair earlier in the novel and using that as her source of like natural beauty or something as opposed to dresses and makeup and all the things her sibling was like. Her hair is her own. And I do like the connection to her mother here. She likes it because she looks like her mom. Cree's only 14, which means she's kind of just growing into her womanly body in a sense, like she no longer looks like a kid. And I would have liked to see a moment maybe where she's surprised how much she looks like her mom. Maybe all of her siblings look more like her dad and she feels like this is the only connection kind of her family has left to her mother. But the other thing I wanted to say about the mother is that I don't know why both her mother and her grandmother need to be dead. They're both older female figures in her life who she once loved, who kind of served the same purpose. They were the only people who made her feel at home in her family. And with both of them gone, she feels distant. I don't understand as I said before, why both of them have to be in the narrative. If I were actually an editor making notes in the margin of this for a writer, I would ask her what the differentiation between her grandmother and her mother is and why both of them need to be in the story. And if we could combine them into one character, maybe having her never have been that close to her grandmother and like just 
all of the focus on her dead mother as opposed to both of them because with both of them it gets confusing and I feel like neither of them are being covered thoroughly although the grandmother is being focused on more so when the mother is brought up it seems like she doesn't love her mother as much and it's just very confusing. So as much as I like these references to Grandma Cree and her craziness I think I would have rather seen those traits ascribed to her mother and then just let go of the grandmother as a character. And sometimes you got to do that, but I'll talk about that a little bit more at the end. I was pretty speechless as they finished the rest. Locks of my hair littered the floor. Then Miss Shelton started globbing gunks into my hair over the water basin, not helping my fragile emotional state. Once they had finished drying it with hot puffs of air from the oven, they handed me a mirror. See, back then I thought that mentioning hot puffs of air from the oven, like they obviously didn't have blow dryers, it was enough world building to kind of note how this was a medieval world, but that ain't world building, sis. That ain't, that ain't it. Your new look, Miss Hendricks said excitedly. My hair was dark, almost black, and bob cut short just below my ears. Considering Miss Hendricks had done it rather hurriedly, it was jagged cut in some places. I was too horrified to decide if I liked it or not, so I just said, what am I going to do without you two? Then I cried. We cried together in one massive, sobbing hug filled with encouraging words. I kind of like that. We've all been in a group hug like, hug like that before. Just, just a whole blob of emotion. <laughs> That's what this is. And I, you know what? I really do like the relationship Cree has with these two women. I think they're two good supportive figures in her life when the other two have been removed. After we dried our eyes, the final stage took place. I put on my black cloak and sprinted to the stables to get Echo. I managed to get through the stables without I managed to get through the stables without waking the other horses and starting a stampede. But aren't they all in stalls? How would you start a stampede? Anyway, I quietly tacked up Echo and led him to the pasture. I hopped on and said quietly, "Echo, gallop." We flew through the pasture and over the fence to the right side of the palace. I took one last look at my former home before returning my focus to the matter at hand, the gate. If all worked out, the gate should open as soon as I get close. I got within ten feet of the huge doors and a cranking sound filled the air. They flew open. Miss Hendricks had made it to the lift mechanism. Okay, <laughs> back up. <laughs> How did she do that? Because what I can imagine is that there are people who run the gate, which would thus mean that Miss Hendricks and Miss Shelton would have to, like, knock out these people to get control, or straight up murder, or, like, poke them with the sword like Steve does, and paralyze them. I don't know. There are too many questions here on, like, how that was done. Now, just the outer gates. I dashed past the houses of the noblemen and approached the outer gates. They flew open. I saw Miss Shelton waving from the top of the walls. She had better have, like, bodies flopped all around her, like, arrows sticking out of them. Just like... Goodbye, honey. I committed murder for you. Have a good life. Because Miss Shelton is absolutely a crime boss. And had I written the other five novels, she would undoubtedly be the villain behind it all. Whatever the plan ended up being, whatever I made it up to be, it would all come back to Miss Shelton and her crime boss past. I smiled back, but quickly turned my focus back to the currently silent streets of the capital. I passed shops and houses, the lights flickering in the windows and shadows dancing inside. I was a peasant now, a simple commoner. The outskirts of the capital surrounded me within ten minutes, revealing open farmland. The cool night wind blew on my face as I sped away to my freedom.
And that is the end of chapter three. Okay, so at least something finally happened in this book. We're headed in the right direction. It took three chapters to get here, but better late than never. But I still have so many questions. And the first one, I think, is why did Cree's father overreact so dramatically and send her off to this etiquette school just for that one outburst at the delegate meeting when it has been made clear that Cree has been a problem her entire life? I feel like either the tipping event should have been more dramatic or it should have been set up better. And just the tension between them should have been established more clearly so we could feel that this was really the fever pitch of their relationship. But it just kind of came out of nowhere. He just blew up and it was, it was weird. And I also feel like the whole only option left thing needed to be explained way more because it sounded like she had the running away in mind, but then she went to Miss Shelton and Miss Hendricks and they gave her the idea for it when it sounded like she had had that idea before. It was, that was weird. That made zero sense whatsoever. But do I expect this novel to make sense? Absolutely not. So, and the first thing I want to talk about with this chapter is Cree as a morally perfect character in contrast with her greedy father, the king. Straight up, that kind of morality where one character is clearly in the right, another is clearly in the wrong with no room for negotiation, reading that is straight up boring. I feel like that trope is seen a lot in kids' movies. The first one that comes to my head, for whatever reason, is The Lorax, where clearly O'Hare and his air canning industry that's destroying the environment is wrong, and then The Lorax and whoever Zac Efron's character is, they're clearly in the right. But it's a kids' movie. It's meant to be simple. Although, there's an argument there if kids' movies should really be that simple and if we're just dumbing down these big ideas so we think that kids can understand them when kids are really capable of a whole lot more, which has a lot to do with why I write middle grade fiction to offer complexity and big ideas and emotions to kids, but that's a whole nother rant for another day. But point being, there's no complexity there. There's no question about who's going to win. And the same thing is true here in this scene with Cree of Canopy. What I like to see when it comes to the relationship between a hero and a villain is legitimate reasons behind why the villain is acting the way they are that can't be justified. The first person I think of, because I'm a Marvel-minded person, is Thanos. He explains in quite a lot of detail why he decides to snap away half of the universe. And to an extent, you can see his logic, though why he didn't just double the resources in the world instead of snapping half the people away. Still, I'm a bit confused on that, but not the point. This is not a Marvel podcast. Putting Cree in this position of being the moral center of the novel makes her really irritating because she doesn't have any flaws, really. And maybe irritating isn't the right word, but it makes her into just a flat piece of cardboard. It stops her from being relatable. She just hits this, this glass ceiling of humanness that she can't quite get past because she's more perfect than any person you'll meet off the page. What you want to do with your main characters is give them room to exist in a morally gray area. I want to see characters struggle with choices. I want to see them make the wrong choices for the right reasons or vice versa. The right choices for the wrong reasons? Yeah, wait, that would be interesting too. <laughs> Basically, the whole point of this rant is don't make your characters perfect. And don't make them 100% evil either, because people aren't. We all have good and bad that coexist inside of us at the same time, 
and I want characters that demonstrate that same kind of complexity. Now if you haven't done a whole lot of character work this might sound kind of contrary. Like why would I want to give my character a flaw or try and make them unlikable? I want to make them as likable and perfect as possible so my reader will will like them. But really and honestly the more flaws you see the more human they appear, the more sympathetic they appear. So to kind of synthesize something from that fairly philosophical rant, write flaws into your good characters and write admirable traits into your villains. So confuse your readers, it's great, it's a lot of fun. The next thing I wanted to talk about also has to do a lot with character, and it's recognizing when characters are performing the same function and need to be combined into one human being. And I don't know about you, but I am a very character-driven writer. I write stories primarily driven by people, not driven by events. Of course, one can't exist without the other, but characters and, and their stories are really what get me excited about writing a new novel. So, point being, I get really attached to them like children or friends. I don't like when people talk about characters like they're children. These people are not my children. They're just like friends or family. Children, I find that dynamic to be a little bit weird. So the few times that I've had to combine characters, I found it very hard to let go. I can remember having to do that twice. One in the story about the girl whose mother has breast cancer. The girl has an older brother who had a love interest, and this love interest, I just really liked her as a character. She was kind of sassy and contrary to a lot of other characters in the story, and she was just a whole heck of a lot of fun to write. But I realized that she wasn't serving any purpose to the larger narrative, and there was no reason for the older brother to have this romance, and it wasn't helping anything along. So. I decided, most unfortunately, to cut her. Now I guess this isn't an example of combining a character, it's an example of getting rid of a character when you realize that they aren't holding their weight, as I like to say. Because no matter how much I liked this character, she didn't have a purpose. So I had to decide whether or not I wanted to give her a purpose and make her a bigger part of the story that was more relevant, or just get rid of her. And sometimes, as much as it hurts, you've gotta let go of characters. And you know, you know, you're on the right track with the story when good things start to end up on the cutting room floor. That means what's left is even better. But now back to combining characters. As I was saying kind of before, Kree's grandma and Kree's mother serve the same purpose as kind of dead female mentor figures to Kree. And honestly, there's no reason for both of them to exist in the story, and it just gets a little bit confusing. So, as I was saying, if I were an editor, I'd recommend combining them. I've had this happen once before in my writing as well. In the first middle grade novel I wrote, I had two bully characters and two friend characters who kind of turned and joined the bully group, leaving the main character um, alone. But I realized there was no reason to have the two archetypical bully girls who just didn't have a reason for being mean and were just mean for sport, and I could just get rid of them and combine some of their traits with the main character's two friends and make them kind of frenemies, which made the dynamic way more interesting and cut off a lot of the fat so it was way less confusing in terms of the relationships between the girls. And I think the same principle applies here to Kree's mom and grandma. It would be way simpler in this story if it was just her mom who she kind of idolized and focused on. And the grandmother actually will come back a whole heck of a lot in this story later. I'm not even going to explain how. We're just going to leave that for a surprise because yes, she is dead. 
you'll see anyway. But I, I think it would be interesting to have the mother fill that role instead, and it could be just as sweet. So in summary, sometimes you've got to shift around your characters, which feel like the most unmovable thing of a story, but your story will be better for it when you recognize what isn't serving the whole grand purpose of the novel, and you have the courage to cut something good, as hard as it can be. And the last thing I wanted to talk about is the plan for Kree's escape. Even 14-year-old me recognized how ridiculous and ill-thought-out it was. Also the fact that it was executed perfectly on the first try. I would have loved to see Kree fail and then have to come up with something on the fly and like her father catches her and it would have been a whole big deal. But of course that did not happen and she's just the perfect pr protagonist who does it right on the first try and Miss Shelton like casually murders people for her. It, she didn't actually, that was not my intention, I'm just joking. Anyway, but what I really wanted to say about the plan was if you are going to write some intricately planned heist escape like this, I hate to tell you, but you need to know most of the details. <laughs> your reader will see through your poorly constructed idea if you just kind of try and gloss past it. Then your story will lose credibility. I'm not saying you need to give every detail of scenarios like this kind of escape, which could be wide and varied, whether you're, you know, it's an escape, it's a heist, it's a hacking into a computer, I don't know. But you need to give just enough so the reader feels like they're on the inside of whatever's going on too, and keeps them interested and makes them feel like they're in the know, even though they're not necessarily. Because right now, I'm left with more questions because of the generality than if I had thrown in some concrete details. And that generality is thus distracting for the reading experience. You never want your reader to be distracted and pulled out of the story by a lack or overabundance of detail. You've got to hit that right medium and it's kind of hard to do. Actually, I said this was the last thing, but this relates really well, oddly, to the sword fighting paralysis with Steve. As I was saying before, I would have rather it been replaced with a magic system because magic can be explained away as as magic. I don't need to know how poking somebody with a magic sword or whatever, you know, could really paralyze them. You say it's magic? Sure, I can suspend my disbelief enough for that. But 14-year-old me trying to, you know, go off of her seventh grade bio knowledge of the human body and say, oh yeah, if you poke the stomach, the thigh, and the upper arm, somebody will be paralyzed. Like, no, I can't believe that because your details were so ridiculous ridiculously absurd and made zero sense. So then I'm thinking more and more about how absurd it sounds instead of just kind of suspending my belief and thus you've pulled me out of the story and things are falling apart. So you've got to strike this balance between hitting the right amount of suspension of disbelief and assuming your reader will just kind of take your word for a magic system or something like that but also knowing that the reader will be scrutinizing all of the details that you give them. So the details that you do offer about sword fighting, a magic system, whatever it may be, need to be intentional and infallible. I think of the biggest magic system there is in Kidslet, the Harry Potter magic. We don't know where the magic comes from inside witches and wizards, but I'm able to accept it because it's made to feel so real in the world and so legitimate. Thus, 
my disbelief is suspended. With the poking paralysis, I'm thinking too much about how this works. It sounds too ridiculous. My disbelief is not suspended. It is crashing to the floor and shattering into a million pieces. <laughs> and hitting that happy medium in fantasy in particular is very difficult. And a lot of it really does come back to world building and how well you've established the rules of the world, what is possible within it, and, and such and so forth. So I guess the point is, assume your reader will believe everything you say, but also assume they'll be coming at it with an incredibly skeptical attitude at the exact same time. It's a paradox. This whole show is full of paradoxes. Are you even surprised? And honestly, a lot of writing advice is kind of paradoxical in itself and comes down to the concept of balance more than anything. So that is all I had to say in terms of craft with chapter three. So far, I am most invested in Miss Shelton's crime boss past, and I'll be straightforward with you, does not come back up at all, and I am disappointed by that. We'll never know. We'll never know Miss Shelton's backstory. I'm the author and I don't even know. <laughs> I feel like I just spent a lot of time being very critical to my 14-year-old self, but I do need to say a few good things that she did. I really liked how the relationship between Miss Hendricks and Mrs. Shelton was developed a little bit more in this chapter, as well as her sweet relationship with Steve. And on an exceptionally basic level, I love that things are happening. So good job, 14-year-old me. You got there. I hope you come back for chapter four. We're going to get into a new setting and meet some pretty cool characters, and the action will, will really start to pick up, and some crazy things happen in chapter four, if my memory serves me right. So until then, keep on writing and keep being kind to yourself.